Well, good afternoon. Someone who's new in the church, has been only attending three weeks, asked me a really important question. Uh, pastors assume way too much. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, I've probably taught many times, and you've thought to yourself, I have no idea what he means or what he's talking about. Don't nod. Uh, if, that, uh, if that describes you, it's too depressing. Okay? <laughs> but the new guy said, uh, I've, what's your teaching plan? Because I, I heard a message in Luke and then in Matthew, and what's going on? What's your plan? I should tell you. If you've been here for a while, you know we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a very long time. But a long time ago as well, I decided uh, that we would be in a short series in Luke for three or four weeks and move through a theme of a particular chapter or section of Luke, and then I would alternate that with another, uh, another topic or another Bible book. So we've been in Luke and also in Proverbs. We've been in Luke, and for several weeks we talked about hard questions that I asked you to provide for me. Next week, we'll briefly go back for a few weeks to the hard question series, and here's next week's topic. Asked to me by a, a, a man in the church who works in business in a really high-stress environment. I don't remember his exact wording, but it had to do with this. How can I be ambitious and content at the same time? Is it okay to be ambitious? I want to talk to you and I want to ask you about that next week specifically. Many Christians hear the word ambition and kind of flinch. And we, yet we see a God who strives, who works, who is successful. And at the same time, we're told something that is so hard to do anywhere in the world, but especially in coastal Orange County. We're told to be content and to not be envious. How do contentment and ambition live together? can they? That's next week's topic. Today, we're in the Gospel of Luke. Will you open with me, please, to Luke chapter 10? Doesn't creep you out that I'm this close, does it? <laughs> Tell me the truth, front row. You okay? I really appreciate that. It really helps with a small group of people to have you close. Luke chapter 10. This is a story that is so well known, you might be tempted mentally to skip it and think you know it and you know the point. And there's a really good chance that you do. But I'd like to invite you to stand with me in the dust of the first century and hear Jesus tell it again. Like so many conversations in Jesus' life, it came out of a time of testing and trouble. Someone was trying to get Jesus in trouble, asked him a question publicly to see if he could create problems in Jesus' life. And there's a couple temptations in this, listening to this sermon. The first and the classic one is that you'll believe that this sermon is for somebody else and that you'll think to yourself, once you get Jesus' point, if I can faithfully show you what he meant by telling this famous story, once you get that point, you'll be tempted perhaps to think, I wish X, Y, or Z were here. I wish my ex-wife were here. I wish my ne'er-do-well brother-in-law were here. I wish my kids were here. This would do them a great deal of good. And again, you may be right about that. 
But don't listen to this sermon or any other. Don't ever listen to any Bible teaching as something that is for somebody else, especially as a club in your hand or ammunition in your gun to go tell them what's up. Listen to Scripture for what it has to teach you. That's one of the temptations. The next one we'll come to in a moment. Let's start reading in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Luke, who wrote this as an investigative journalist, basically, is being inspired by God to write his faithful historic word And Luke is given insight into why this man is talking to Jesus. Did you pick it up? It said a lawyer stood up to do one thing. What's his point? It's okay to talk back. Put him to the test. He wants to get him in trouble. And you'll notice the man asking the question is what kind of man? What's he do for a living? He's a lawyer. If you've got a lawyer joke, this is the place to put it, okay? Um. A little bit about that. This isn't the kind of lawyer that you and I know as a practicing attorney. This is an expert in the law, but it's God's law. This is a man who has devoted his life, and we don't really have minds like theirs among us anymore, I don't think. The scribes and the lawyers would dedicate themselves, the scribes, to writing out the Word of God. They began as men who were so careful and so devoted to the Hebrew Scriptures They could not only tell you the Scriptures, they not only knew them by heart, but they had dedicated themselves right down to the amount of detail of telling you how many letters were in the law of God. And the lawyers were experts in God's law. That meant that some of them were called upon, either as a group or individually, to settle hard problems. They're a lawyer in that sense. In other words, this is a man who knows the Scriptures deeply, and he's going to ask Jesus the most important question of all. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And there's not a more important question you could ever ask yourself than that. I've been reading a really helpful book, again, about the will of God, and the author rightly points out that one of the problems that we have in the United States in knowing the will of God is that we're so unusually blessed, we have a lot of options. Two, three generations ago, if you grew up on the farm, guess what you were going to be? A farmer. And you were going to marry someone in your town and very likely in your church. And by the way, this is what's for dinner. No, you don't go out and get your own stuff. You don't call or have somebody drive in a car to bring you something else. There just weren't that many options. So we have so many choices that sometimes those of us who have kids who are teenagers and young adults, our kids are frozen because they have so many questions to consider. Should I study? Should I go to college? Which college? What should I major in? If I'm not going to college, what am I going to do? Am I going to learn a trade? Am I going to work here? Am I going to move somewhere else where I can buy a house? What am I going to do? But none of those questions, not one of them, stacks up, compares to this one. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because you can answer all of the other questions correctly, and if you don't know the answer to that question, it's all lost. But you'll notice The point of this is to test Jesus. Why would this be a test? 
Because there were so many of these experts that in their days they had a learned opinion based not only on the law of God but fatally on their own traditions that they had written and given authoritative opinions about everything. And if you ever took a side, you were in trouble with everybody else. So Jesus is being put to the test to get him in trouble with at least somebody. And look at the wisdom. He, Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You see what he's done? He's quite actually said, you're the expert. You know the law. You've read it. You know it by heart. What have you found in the Word of God? And that's such a helpful devotional exercise to ask yourself as you're reading the Word of God, what am I seeing here so that it can speak to you? And he answered, and he puts two verses together that Jesus will as well. See if you can find anything wrong with his answer. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What do you think of his answer? Pretty good, right? Did you read ahead? Because look at verse 28. He said to him, you have answered correctly. And this brings us to the second temptation in this sermon. It's very tempting to hear Jesus agree with this man, citing Scripture. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. Love him supremely. Love, you with, love him with everything he's given you. In other words, love him with heart, soul, strength, and mind. Those words are different and repetitive at the same time because the idea is love God with the totality of who you are. Your thoughts, your emotions, your decision-making, everything you have, use it to love God and your neighbor as yourself. He's taken a passage from Deuteronomy and a passage from Leviticus and brought them together, and this for time immemorial has been called simply the great commandment. Jesus would later say in the Gospel of Matthew, upon those simple instructions depend all the rest of the Scriptures. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly, and then he says, do this and you will live. Now, here's the danger for you. First is thinking that this sermon isn't for you. And secondly, looking at what Jesus said and the high, high standard of loving God with everything and loving your neighbor as yourself and thinking that you can actually do that well enough to please God. Let me be really clear and really practical. If you hear this sermon as an incentive, as help to moral self-improvement, you've missed Jesus' point and I've failed as a preacher. Let's just turn that commandment back on ourselves. Look at it carefully. Love the Lord your God with, what's it say? Heart, soul, strength, and mind. How are you doing on that? God's a real person. He's given you heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you used all of it all week to love Him? In other words, in every waking moment, have you, would you say that your heart, soul, mind, and strength has been dedicated? If anybody would examine 
the entirety of your week, you're saying, here is a person who has been completely dedicated in love to the God who made him. What would you say? Not me. Not close. The second commandment, which Jesus says is like it, isn't any easier. Your neighbor as yourself. How'd you do on that one? Did you love the person beside you the same way you love yourself? I haven't. Because here's the thing about me. The first person I think about is me. You ever notice that? Like the world's worst thing will happen. And the reflexive human thought is, this is hurting me. And then you quickly correct yourself and say, oh, but it's hurting them so much more. We are, anybody who's had a two-year-old can tell you, we are selfish right down to the cellular level. Now, what's the point of the law of God? Why did Jesus agree with this man and say in response to his question, do this and you will live? Because he's right. If anyone could do that, they would live because they would be morally God's equal. They would have no sin to be sorry for, nothing to repent of. But that never has been the point of God's law. See, the only thing the law can do is show you that you're in trouble. Let me tell you a story that takes place many years ago when I was younger and much dumber, even dumber than I am now. As a young married man, we've rented a car, and we're going up on Christmas Eve to see my grandmother in Canyon, Texas. Anybody familiar with the Texas Panhandle? Congratulations. If you don't know the Texas Panhandle, good for you. My hometown is Amarillo, and some people say that the only good thing to come out of Amarillo is Interstate 40, okay? It's just uh, it's that kind of place. <laughs> so I've rented, I've rented a car. I'm just old enough to rent a car. And I'm driving that baby because I've got kind of a junker in college and this is a big old boat of an Oldsmobile and I don't care that much about the gas and I am flying up the Texas Panhandle. My wife, who grew up not far from there, is telling me something I already know. Look out for the speed trap. If you're ever going that way, there's a very famous, well-known speed trap and I'm giving her my version of woman let a man drive. Okay? Again, young and dumb. And that's when I discovered that they had also put some poor Texas state trooper on that highway on Christmas Eve just to look out for knuckleheads like me. Here's how you know you're getting a ticket in Texas. When the man says, sir, first of all, he takes five minutes to walk from his cruiser to my car, right? I mean, he practically, I can hear the spurs uh, clinking as he comes, just measuring me. And I'm thinking, how bad is this going to be? Am I actually going to be arrested? Here's the question that lets you know you're getting a ticket. Sir, are there any medical emergencies in your vehicle that I should be aware of at this point in time? <laughs> and what that means is, unless somebody's having a baby or bleeding out in the back seat, you're done, pal. And I nearly said, my heart stopped when I saw your lights, but I figured I was in enough trouble, so I just said no. And he did something that nobody's ever done. I've been stopped a handful of times. And this has never happened before or since. He actually took me back to the cruiser and made me sit beside him and explained to me what a radar detector was and explained to me how it worked. And then he said, can you tell me the number you see on the screen? Yes. Would you tell me what number you see there? 86. 
Then he said, do you also know the posted speed limit on this section of the highway? And I said, yes. What is it? 55. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's the law. The law was posted. The law was clear for my own reasons, mainly to get to grandma's, mainly to show off in front of my wife, mainly because it wasn't my car and I didn't have to worry about what was happening to the engine. I decided to break the law. Now, at that point, I only have one recourse, and that is to ask the man for mercy. I've broken the law. There's no doubt about it. I've got it literally in digital writing. I've said, he's made me say, with my mouth, the nature and the exact extent of my offense. And that's the nature of the law. Law, Paul explains in the Romans, shuts people's mouths. So what should have happened to this lawyer is when he, with his own mouth, spoke of God's high standard, he should have said to Jesus, I haven't done that. I can't do that. What do I do now? And he would have had the answer that the Philippian jailer had later in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. That man asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul told him, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, when the law breaks you, when the law shuts you up, its intended purpose from God is to make guilty people turn to him for mercy. But that's not what this man is going to do, and that's what caused Jesus to tell the famous story. This man stands at the crossroads between pride and humility. He has a choice, as they also say in Texas, to bow up, to get stiff-necked, to go a little bit harder, and to reassert himself to see if somehow he can still meet the standard or he can humble himself before Jesus. And I want you to see his choice. Verse 29, that he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The question is important. Luke says, first he asked him a question to test him. He got an answer from Scripture that he provided himself. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. And having been stung by the law, Luke now says he wants to justify himself. And the question he asked to try to justify himself is, who's my neighbor? Now think through, think through it with me for just a second because this unlocks the story. How is asking the question, who is my neighbor, going to help this guy? How does that help him going to be justified? What's he trying to do? Think about it for just a second, because you know, you've been given a clear indication in Scripture, this question is intended to get him off the hook, to justify him. How is asking who is my neighbor going to help in any way? Yes. This man wants to narrow the scope. Nothing he can do about God. God is God. But in terms of the neighbor... Maybe I can shrink the island of the people I'm supposed to love. And he had good reason for that. See, it was never found in Scripture. In fact, it's a contradiction of the Scripture, of the Spirit and the words of Scripture. 
But the rabbinic traditions in this man's time have given Israelites permission to say that their neighbor is the people in the nation, the people that are like them, the people that agree with them and worship as they do. Everyone else, God told us to love the neighbor, but he's not one of us. He's not our neighbor. I want you to listen, according to a commentary by Dr. Lightfoot, I want you to hear some of the religious thinking that was in this man's mind from the day of Jesus. This is religious writing. It's not in the Bible, obviously, as you're soon going to find out just by listening to the first line. But here's religious thought in these days from an ancient document. We, speaking of the Gentiles, speaking of outsiders, it says we are not to contrive their death. Well, that's good, right? In other words, don't plan to kill them. You got foreigners in, in the country, don't, don't actively plot their death. Good. We are not to contrive their death. But if they be in any danger of death, we are not bound to deliver them. Example, if any of them falls into the sea, you shall not need to take him out. For it is said, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but such a one is not thy neighbor. See how convenient that is? We have an obligation to our tribe, and you shouldn't... If actually want to hurt him, but if you're walking by a cliff and you see one of these Gentiles, one of these outsiders, tumble down a cliff, knock himself out, and fall into deep water, it's okay. If you want to help, you can, but you're certainly not bound to because he is not your neighbor. That's why the story that Jesus told, which you're so familiar with, is so explosive. The question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Those are actual places you can still see today. It's the most well-traveled road, some scholars say, in Israel. He's coming down from Jerusalem, perhaps he's, if he's an outsider from Jerusalem, perhaps he's gone to worship. He's coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's a desert road, it's well-traveled, but there are also many caves beside it, great little lairs, great little hideouts for bandits. And he fell among robbers, and look how they treated him. Look at the drama of Jesus' story. They stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. He's in danger. He's going to die on the side of the road. Fortunately, it would seem, some other people are on the road too, verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. What's going on here? A priest represented God to the people. A Levite was one of those men from the tribe of Levi dedicated to serving the people and helping the priest. In other words, these are the best guys in Israel. They've got the Scripture in their heart and on the tip of their tongue as well. But when they see this disaster of a naked, half-dead man on the side of the road… They do something maybe you've done with someone in a great deal of need. You just kind of, oh, I don't see you. Glad I'm wearing sunglasses. And they just keep walking. 
And then the story gets ugly for the lawyer. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, now if you hadn't recognized it before, you recognize the story now. What do we call this story? Parable of the Good Samaritan. And just to put it on an emotional level for you so that you can understand why what follows was so offensive to this man, saying a good Samaritan in the day of Jesus was like saying to a group of Americans the good Taliban or the good Al-Qaeda. There's just no room for good people to be in that group. If they were good people, they wouldn't belong to the Samaritans. What were the Samaritans? They were ancestral enemies of Israel. Long, long, long before Jesus is talking to this man, some Jews have intermarried with pagans. They have established their own place and their own temple for worship. The Jews hated that so much that they actually physically, violently destroyed the temple. There's enmity between them for centuries. Their tension continues to this day. It's both ethnic and religious. These two groups do not care for each other. I have never been able to find the source, but my Hebrew professor said that a Samaritan tradition said this, if a Samaritan saves the life of a Jew, the Samaritan has to be killed by his own people. I mean, it's hatred on that scale. And Jesus doesn't tell you that the Samaritan is good. Like a good writer, he just invites you to watch what the man does and discover it. As a Samaritan... A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. For the first time in the story, somebody is moved with the plight, with the trouble of another human being. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. In other words, he's using traditional remedies with what he has available to help this man. The wine was meant to cleanse the wounds, to oil to soothe them. Then he set them on his own animal. In other words, he's going to walk down the desert now. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, my translation says, that's two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now it's a long time ago and a long way away, but can you put yourself in this scenario? Can you envision everything that it's cost this man to help the other? Wherever he's going, that's stopped. He's taken a whole day. He's put him up at his own expense at an inn. He's left two days' worth of wages. I don't know what you're earning, but for anybody, if it's two days' worth of wages, that's a considerable sum. And more than that, he said, I'm leaving, but put it on my tab. When I come back this way, I promise I'll pay. Whatever else it costs to get him well, I'm good for it. Wow. That's love. Here's the money question, and I have a question for you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now what's going on here? I want you to compare the question that the man asked to justify himself. Okay, look back at that please. The man asked Jesus a question to justify himself in verse 29. What is it? 
who is my neighbor? Does Jesus answer? He asks, he doesn't answer. He asks another question. What does he ask? Verse 36. Who proved to be the neighbor? See the point? Here's the point of Jesus' teaching, my words. Jesus is telling this man, stop evaluating who deserves love and start being the person who loves them. And that's hard. Because if you're a normal, self-centered human being, you've got an endless mechanism inside you that quickly evaluates people the minute you meet them And as long as they're in your life, especially family, does this person acting the way they're acting, being who they are, do they deserve my love? And if so, how much? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. You're trying to shrink the island. You're trying to narrow the scope of who is your neighbor so that you can make it comfortable for yourself and love those whom you choose to love, who you're capable of loving. I've told you this radical story of someone you don't even have any conception of, of someone who you hate, who actually proves to be the best man around. He's the one that proves to be a neighbor. In other words, he isn't asking, should I love? He's showing up as the person who is loving. And then he leaves us, the readers, and this man with this simple admonition. You've understood it correctly. That man showed mercy. Now you go and do the same. Now why does this matter? Because we all inside of us have an internal ledger that we keep. You can't see it, but it's there. Of offenses and characteristics that make it impossible for us to love that guy. It might be an individual, it may be a whole group. And Jesus says, you, first of all, should acknowledge that you can't keep the law and come running to me for mercy. But now that we are disciples of Jesus, our mandate is actually to love as we've been loved and expand the circle of people that we're willing to love. Jesus was insistent on this. It shows up all over his teaching. I want you to read this with me in Matthew chapter 5. And there's a reference here to tax collectors, which again were a hated group in Israel because they'd sold out to the Roman Empire. They were Jews who had made league with the Roman conquerors, bought a tax franchise, were collecting taxes from the, from the conquerors and keeping the, at least part of the proceeds for themselves as the price of their betrayal. Listen to Jesus readjust our world. Read this with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's the law again. I can't. So let's get really practical. Since it's a small group, I'm tempted to be practical. You don't have to tell anybody. It's too embarrassing. Is there somebody you've already decided you're just not going to love anymore? Somebody you're trying to love. And notice how practical Jesus is. He gives you one specific thing to do for enemies. What is it? You show us the first slide, Barb. You have heard that it was said. This is what the crowd's saying. This is the conventional wisdom. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. There's a sure measure of how much I'm actually following Jesus, how willing I am to pray for people who've got it in for me. Now, pray against them. Pray for them. Smite them, O God, they afflict thy servant, right? No. I know it's not that kind of praying because Jesus said, love them. Love your enemies. Here's a practical way. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because when you do that, you show up as a son of your Father in heaven. You show up as a child of God. You show up as someone who has come to the law, been broken by it, and turned to God instead for mercy. This is really important because there are people in your circle, probably in your family, that because of old wounds, relationships are frozen because you've decided that's enough love for you. And I'm just being picturesque with language just to make the point. I'm not saying any of this is easy. There are people in my life, apart from Jesus, I cannot and do not love them. When I love them, it's only because he's working in my heart and making his heart, my heart, somewhat more like his own. But see, this is the radical, revolutionary, world-tilting, world-changing thing about Jesus. This was so profound that it changed the way we talk about Samaritans. Nobody ever talks about Samaritans as hated people anymore. We name hospitals after this guy. Why is that? Because the teaching of Jesus is so profound. Stop calibrating who is your neighbor and show up as the one who loves. When you love them, at that moment they are your neighbor. They were in need before you. And you made it practical and you made the love of God real in their life. Before I close, let me give you three simple ideas on how this could work so that we can make it as practical as possible. How do we do this? First of all, make sure to love some people who can't make it up to you. See, the people I love most on earth are my wife and my two sons. But if I'm honest, they've been so good, they've been so faithful, they've been so wonderful that I get a lot out of that love. It's very easy for me to love Sharice, Ryan, and Evan. And Jesus would say, good for you, but the Gentiles do the same. Worst people in the world love their wife and kids, usually. Nothing special about that. Bruce, who do you love that can't do anything for you? Who do you love without any assurance that anything is coming back? Any blessing other than obedience to God is coming back because you love them. That's the real test. 
so much. I've been playing a game for years when I go to pick out a Valentine's Day card or a Mother's Day card or something for my wife. See if you can find one of those little love notes that doesn't talk about how much you get out of the relationship. Just check it out. Next time you're at Target, even the love notes are self-centered. You complete me. Oh, great. <laughs> now I'm set because of you, right? Keep doing it, babe. See if you can find it. The way we've thought about love, even the love so-called is self-centered. Who do you love that can't help? Who's the, who do you, in this story, there's no assurance that the man's going to pull it together and be able to repay the Samaritan? Maybe he's a man of wealth, we don't know, but one thing for sure, the guy's too beat up and he doesn't own anything that he once had on him. It's entirely on the Samaritan's account. But that wasn't what mattered. What mattered is the man's dying on the side of the road. That's what called forth compassion and mercy. Second idea. Try doing for one person what you wish you could do for all of them. See, too many times, I recognize this now, even and especially when we were missionaries, I would come across a person in legitimate need and I would calibrate my response on the basis of this. Whatever I do for this guy, I'll have to do, can you guess the rest of it? For everybody. Consequently, I'm not going to do anything for you. When I think about it, that's really self-serving. Since I can't do everything for everyone, I won't do anything for anyone. Isn't that neat? See how clever a pastor can be, a missionary can be? You have limited resources. You have limited time. You have limited money, limited patience, limited talent. But if God directs someone into your path, and maybe they're already in your family, in your circle of friendships... What if you extended yourself fully as the Samaritan did for this man, knowing that you may never be able to help another person the way you're helping this one? Whose life will be changed? The one you helped. Third and final idea is this. Most of all, rest in the grace of God to keep going and to keep loving. In another part of Scripture, Paul is commending Christians on the use of their spiritual gifts, and he says, those of you who have mercy, show mercy cheerfully. And it's really pointed. Those of you who are merciful, that's your gift, that's what the way God made you, that's the gift He presented to you, make sure that you use your mercy cheerfully. Why the qualification? Because mercy dries up. Have you heard of compassion fatigue? Talk to a nurse. Next time you have two minutes with the nurse, ask her or him if the word, if the phrase compassion fatigue means anything to them. Compassion fatigue is exactly what it sounds like. You show compassion and mercy to others, and after a while, you're done, you're bitter, and the whole world stinks. Whatever it is, the people that you serve, they're all awful. How do you keep refreshing yourself in the grace of God? If you love people for the sake of people, you won't last. You have to love people for the love of God, literally. You have to remember that Jesus died on the cross so that you could be saved. You have to remember that in this parable, Jesus told it to illustrate a single point, a single idea 
But if we were to think about it, we could see that we ourselves are the man dying beside the, on the side of the road, and Jesus is the one having mercy on us. How do I know? Because Scripture says things like this. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, do you know the rest of it? Christ died for us. When we were still far from God, still obeying, still disobeying Him, still denying Him, still defying Him, still paying no attention whatsoever to the Creator of the universe, at that exact moment, Paul says elsewhere, when we were weak, that's when Jesus died for sinners. And if I'm loved like that, I'm endlessly secure as long as I keep my eyes on Him. If I think of how I've forgiven, of how I've been provided for, of the generosity of God toward me, how could I ever look at another human being, regardless of what they've done, and say, friend, God will love me, but you're, you're beyond love. God may love you, but I certainly won't. So listen, told both services this morning, one of the tough things about being a pastor, I've noticed this for over 25 years now, all preach a sermon, and if I get the biblical idea, and there's no doubt in my mind that's what this parable means, here's what often happens. God will look at me and say, really? You think you've got the lesson? Here's a pop quiz. And he'll just, like a good teacher, he won't settle for a verbal understanding. He'll test knowledge through practical experience. Let me just, it's not a warning, it's an encouragement. Before you go to sleep tonight, you may be called upon someone who you don't want to love because you don't think they deserve it. You've done it enough. They're the wrong kind of people. They've sinned in the wrong kinds of ways. It might be that God will apply a test of your understanding of this simple Scripture to see how much you've practically understood and how much you are truly His disciple. Let's pray toward that. Lord, thank You for our time together. We go out into a world that is divided, a country that is, is ripped apart in practically every way. Your disciples, Lord, the people who love you, the people you've saved, were the plan, were the answer. Our love for them, the love that we receive from you, shown to them in practical, helpful, encouraging, merciful ways, that is the only thing the truth and the love of the gospel as shown in Christ and through our loving response to the people who need him is the only way you will heal and you will bring people back to yourself. And I know, Lord, a sermon like this is simply taught and simply understood, but there are real wounded relationships, real wounded friendships, real animosities and resentments inside many hearts. I don't know them. But I pray, God, that you would minister to your children here if any of them find themselves in that condition and that you would see us this week before we meet again stepping forward as the one who proves to be a neighbor by our love. In Jesus' name, amen.